and on. Uh, turn in your Bible to the book of Judges, please. Judges chapter 14. Well, in a hospital, you would say cleanliness is very important, would you not? In fact, the closer you get to the operating room, the more important it is. Doctors in every operating room are very concerned that the scalpel not only is not muddy, but that it's not even dusty, right? Uh, because the smallest amount of impurity contaminates that procedure. And great effort is made to sterilize the equipment so that impurity is removed and no infection sets in. And, and if human doctors go through that great detail in making an operating room, uh, in an operating to make sure that the environment is totally free from contamination, then it should not shock us that God himself must function in an atmosphere of perfection. And if human doctors recognize you can't do surgery with contaminated devices, then it should not make us too upset that God can't do the surgery on our lives that he wants to do without sterilizing our lives first. In a very real sense, this is what God has done with Samson, even before his birth. He has separated him, that's that Hebrew word nazir, which means to separate, and from where we get the Nazarite vow. God wants to use Samson, uh, his separation from the Philistine culture, to bring his people back to himself. And Samson has, by definition of his Nazarite vow, been set apart. He's been, if you will, sterilized from the rest of the community even before birth. He wants to pull him apart because God's people are so assimilated into this pagan culture that they've lost their way. So Samson is to be holy and separated and consecrated unto the Lord for his service. And the way that God has done that is by consecrating both Samson and his mother under the Nazarite vow there. He's also given Samson parents who still fear the Lord, even though they're in a culture that is has, uh, has been completely assimilated by worldly thoughts, by the pagan Philistine culture. And God also has given Samson incredible strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission that he has been born to accomplish. And remember what that mission is. We see it in Judges chapter 13, Verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite, or separated unto God, from the womb, and he shall what? Begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Actually, that won't actually completely be done until David. But here we see that uh, Samson is to begin that process. But so far, despite all of the advantages that God has given Samson uh, to accomplish God's will, Samson has not actually started off all that well, has he? It's not really a very good start. And last time together, we saw that Samson had cast his eyes upon a Philistine woman and demanded, much to his parents' dismay, that they get him, get her for him to marry, right? get her for me. And besides the fact that Samson was prohibited from marrying outside God's covenant people, remember we went back to Deuteronomy 7 and looked at that, Samson insists that his parents oblige him. 
and do what he wants. And clearly, Samson was looking for love in all the wrong places, and the lust of his eyes was leading him into sin. Despite the objections of his parents, Samson marches forward with his plan to marry the girl. As he defiantly proclaims in verse 3, get her for me. Why should, why should his parents do that? Because she looks good to me. That's his reasoning. So Samson's parents were shattered, of course. They would have had enough concerns had their son been a normal Israelite. But Samson, remember this whole birth is supernatural, right? I mean, you have the angel of the Lord. You have Christ himself who's coming. God, the second person of the Godhead, announcing this birth. There's this very special significance you know, attached to Samson and his mission. And now the, but uh, now we look at it and we say, uh, the parents are probably thinking, wow, I remember that Lord's prophecy about Samson. How in the world is that going to happen? If he marries the very people we're supposed to, he's supposed to break us from, right? I mean, if his mission is to begin the deliverance from the Philistines, how in the world is that going to happen if he marries one of them, which we're prohibited from doing? However, as we found out in verse 4, God was at work despite Samson's apparent weaknesses. God is still accomplishing his plans. Nothing was going to thwart God's sovereign plan of peeling his people back and out of the clutching grasp of the Philistines. Not even Samson's lust of the eyes, not even his sexual appetite, not even his vindictiveness or his temper, which we'll see here, are coming up all of which will be shamefully displayed for us in our text tonight. So let's look at that together, beginning in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 14. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring towards him. So as Samson is heading to Timnah with his parents to arrange the marriage of Samson and this Philistine girl, a young lion attacks him as he reaches the vineyards. But as the lion attacks, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him mightily, and he kills the lion by ripping it in half. Now, a lot of people ask about that. Well, how is that possible? But this is a little uh, gross, but I'll explain this to you. When they would uh, do a lamb, you know, like sacrifice a lamb, and oftentimes they prepare the lamb, sometimes they would... Uh, do it from the mouth. They would open it up this way. Sorry. Okay. So it's not like he tore him in half. It's not like he went like this and then ripped him in half. It's actually from his mouth. Okay. Anyway, I, you needed to know that, didn't you? Uh, sorry. Okay. So as the lion attacks, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He rips this lion in half. But I want you to note that the strength from Samson is not innate strength. Notice that it only comes when? When the Spirit of the Lord, very good. The strength that came when the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him. So, so far too often we picture Samson like this Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, type guy. But what astounded the Philistines and the Israelites is that he looked like a normal guy until the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, and then he would do something with supernatural strength. So this text describes a man who would appear ordinary in every way, except when the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him. It is then and only then that his great strength is demonstrated. 
Well, evidently, sometime before they reach their destination, Samson is separated from his parents. Now, at first sight, this idea of a lion attacking doesn't seem to have much relevance to the story. But a perceptive reader will recognize that the lion jumps out of the vineyard and attacks Samson is just another way, as you read along later, that God, it's another thing that God had put in to this equation to accomplish his will, right? So this is no accident that a lion happens to attack right when he's there at the vineyard. However, by killing the lion, Samson has now violated his Nazarite vow. Having touched a dead animal, Samson should have headed to the tabernacle for cleansing. Sadly, Samson has absolutely no appreciation for his Nazarite vow. He has no real appreciation for being set apart for the Lord for his service. And it would appear that he does not recognize that what he does in his body actually affects his relationship with the Lord. Now, I want to stop for just a second here because that same truth is applicable today. The apostle warned the Corinthian church of the same dangerous thinking. So keep your place in Judges, but let's just peek forward into the into 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for a second. Because I want you to see here this idea of what we do in our bodies does affect our relationship with the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's Paul warning the Corinthian church of this dangerous thinking. So he says here, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So here we see Paul writing about how our bodies are the temple of God. Why are they considered the temple of God? Because you have the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So your body now is the temple of God. And I think oftentimes we think sometimes that it's like God doesn't know when we're doing what we're doing. It's, it's, it's as if he's not there. I think in our minds we think, well, he's not here. But in the New Testament, he's always with you. We love to say God was with me when something goes well and we did something pleasing to God. But we don't like to think about the fact that God is with us when we're doing things that are not so pleasing to God also. It's not like he takes a night off or leaves. He's permanent, indwelling. You are sealed till the day of redemption. So here we saw Paul writing about how our bodies not, and, and that we should not corrupt them, or the word literally is destroy them by the sins that we commit. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says something very similar. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So here we see Paul writing that our lives are not our own, but we have been bought with a price, and therefore we need to be careful to only do those things in our body which would bring God glory. It's sad how many Christians today seem to believe that what we do to our bodies 
or with our bodies has no spiritual impact on our relationship with the Lord. It's somehow we think that we could, we that we're separated somehow, and that those things don't all aren't all connected. Well, head back to your text here. I just wanted to get, share that little insight because Samson doesn't seem to think that. I mean, he's he's marching along doing things, even though he's been separated from God, or unto God from birth. So Samson demonstrates for us that even though he's under a Nazarite vow of separation unto the Lord, he has not separated unto the Lord himself. Right? He's been declared or pronounced or separated from birth, but there's, a, there's an integral part of this that's missing, and that is he is not setting himself apart unto the Lord. He's not striving to live a life that's honoring or glorifying to God. He's not striving to be obedient to the Lord in the least. And despite the clear and definitive direction of the Lord to separate himself unto the Lord, and despite being raised and trained up to do just that, to be separated unto the Lord for his service, Samson has no intention of doing that. Why? Because he's consumed with his own desires. He hasn't set apart himself unto the Lord. He's just feeding his desires as quickly as he can devour them. He's on his way to see the woman that he wants, so he doesn't even tell his parents what has happened. He doesn't even tell them that he has killed this lion. Nor does he head to the tabernacle for cleansing. He simply proceeds on his way to do what he wants to do. And what he wants is in verse 7. So he went down and talked to the woman, and what? She looked good to Samson. There we go. This is what's driving this. He wants to talk to this woman. Why? The text tells us because she looked good to him. And once again, his lust of his eyes drives him further and further away from the Lord and deeper and deeper into sin. Look at verses 8 and 9 then. When he had returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. Well, sometime later it says, Samson and his parents make yet another trip to Timnah, but for some unknown reason, Samson goes out of his way to view a dead carcass. Now remember, he's a Nazarite, right? He's not supposed to be touching anything dead. This is exactly the kind of thing someone under a Nazarite vow would not do is go over and willfully touch something that is dead. After all, the lion is dead and Samson would be defiled yet again. But he's on his way. So as he approaches the dead lion, he finds that bees have taken over the dead lion's carcass and built a honeycomb, a honeycomb into it. And once again, the perceptive reader notices that that seems a bit strange, but it's connected into this story. This is God's hand using Samson's weakness to still accomplish his plan. But that honey should have been off limits to both Samson and his parents, incidentally. But that doesn't stop Samson. This time, he not only defiles himself again by touching an unclean animal, but he scoops some of the honey out of this uh, 
and gives it to his parents as well. Of course, he doesn't mention where he got it from. And so they are unknowingly defiled as well. Actually, you can find this in Numbers chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 11. They're not supposed to be touching, uh, even if they weren't, even if his uh, mom had not been under that Nazarite vow also for him while he was, she was carrying him. No Jew was supposed to be touching dead, uh, dead things as well. So Samson is really being driven here again by his own lusts. He wants a woman. So he goes after it, regardless of the consequences. He wants to touch a dead animal without seeking cleansing. No problem. He just goes and does it. He's hungry. He wants to eat. No worries at all. Just stop by and do it. There's no indication in the text that he has any remorse at all for anything that he's doing. There doesn't seem to be any second thoughts about his actions. He doesn't even seem to be contemplating about the effects his actions might have on others, specifically his parents. He doesn't seem to care at all that the Lord has forbidden this marriage. And he's not demonstrated in any sense in the text so far that he has even the slightest inclination to do what would be honoring to God. And yet, Samson has been set apart unto God before his birth. In fact, it's suspiciously obvious that Samson is not talking about the Lord at all. We don't see that at all, do we? We don't see him talking about the Lord. We don't see him seeking the Lord. We don't see him attempting to live for the Lord. If we did not know the background of Samson's life, and we just started reading here in chapter 14, it would be hard for us to see where he has been separated unto the Lord at all. We would think that this is... A Philistine, if you were to watch his actions. In fact, his life does not look a lot different from the life of a pagan Philistine or an assimilated Israelite, incidentally. Both of whom were doing what was right in their own eyes. I want it, I'll go get it. I think it's right, I'll go do it. I don't care and neither of which seem to be too concerned about what God has to say about it either. Well, in verse 10, Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there for the young men, customarily did this. So, the Sam, so then Samson's father accompanied him to Timnah for the marriage. And it's here that Samson hosted a party, as was customary for the bridegroom to do. That word here, feast, if you have the word feast, is actually a Hebrew word that means drunken celebration. Drunken celebration. And these drunken wedding feasts would go on typically for a week. Scripture does not indicate whether Samson drank wine or fermented drink, although I find it highly unlikely that, based on his, his actions so far, that he didn't partake in this. But regardless, it's yet another source of temptation. Do you notice how... Samson just keeps getting closer and closer to the fire. You notice that? He just keeps kind of moving closer and closer to the fire. And eventually, obviously, it, it will lead even to his sin. And in the event that he did partake, we would be witnessing Samson breaking his Nazarite vow yet again. Because he's not to have anything uh, to do with the vine, right? Nothing from the fruit of the vine. So already we've seen him touching the carcass of a dead animal, not once, but twice. 
He also ate honey out of a dead animal and then defiled his parents as well by sharing the honey with them, unbeknownst to them. And now we see that he's most likely participating in the fruit of the vine, another prohibition of the Nazarite vow. What kind of holiness, what kind of consecration is it that Samson is demonstrating? It's not God's holiness, that's for sure. It's not God's holiness that Samson is seeking, but rather a holiness of his own making. It's a holiness standard that he has developed himself. It's a term I'd like to call shallow holiness. Shallow holiness. Shallow holiness is the kind of holiness that, although has the trappings of holiness, Samson's hair isn't cut. Most people would have looked at Samson and said, well, he might be under a Nazarite vow. Now, that must be a very pious young man. And yet, his actions don't line up with that at all, do they? Externally, he looks like he might be doing something special for God, and yet his actions uh, defy that. It's a shallow holiness. It's the kind of holiness that, although it has the trappiness of the holiness of God, it really lacks the one thing necessary to accomplish it. And that one thing is a desire to be consecrated unto the Lord. It's a desire to be set apart unto the Lord for his service. Yes, I do understand that God who is working in you and through you to accomplish his will. I get that. And yes, there is that divinely empowered effort that God has required from us as well. Yes, God can even work through his weaknesses, as we saw last week, right? And still accomplish uh, his will. But what gives him his greatest glory is when we willingly submit and consecrate ourselves unto him. And to do that requires a desire to be in his word so that we may be instructed perhaps even rebuked or corrected or receive instructions in righteousness. I'm paraphrasing 2 Timothy 3.16. We should desire to be around God's people as often as possible. Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the assembly, even more so as the day of the Lord approaches. There should be a desire to be in God's presence through the reading of his word and prayer and worship. In short, we should desire to glorify him through our obedience to his word and the leading of his spirit. And we do that as we constantly seek to be in his presence. What I'm saying is, is that if you are consecrating yourself unto the Lord, those would be the kind of actions that would be indicated in your life. Not constantly coming as close as you can to the flame to see whether or not you get burned or not. Or how many times you can move your hand in and out of the flame without getting burned. That's kind of what it looks like Samson is doing. And yet Samson has been consecrated unto the Lord before he was even born. You know, if you listen to your favorite radio station as you head out of town, you'll kind of quickly discover that as you're heading down the highway that the further you get away from the city, the weaker the signal gets. And eventually, if you keep driving away from that signal, you'll not be able to get your radio station at all. And that's kind of what sin does to us. It distances us from the Father. And the, far, the farther we go away from him, the less of him that we can actually hear. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Great Awakening Revival in America, once said the following words in regard to his consecrating himself completely to the Lord 
to be his person. Now, I want you to listen to this prayer of Jonathan Edwards. I'm not going to read the whole thing, of course. He was quite verbose, but I'll give you enough to understand what his heart was. Because Jonathan Edwards was a man who was consecrated unto the Lord. He wrote this, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, no right to this will, these affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, to the feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and told him I have given myself wholly to him. I have given every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. I have expressly promised him, for by his grace I will not fail. I take him as my whole portion, looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness. His law is the constant rule of my obedience. I will fight with all my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I will adhere to the faith of the gospel, however difficult the profession and practice of it may be. I receive the blessed spirit as my teacher, my sanctifier, my only comforter, and I cherish all admonitions to enlighten and purify and confirm and comfort and assist me. This I have done. I pray God for the sake of others to look upon this as self-dedication and receive me as his own. Henceforth I, uh, henceforth, I am not to act in any respect as my own. I shall act as my own if I ever make use of any of my powers to, to do anything that is not to the glory of God or to fail to make the glorifying of him my entire focus. If I murmur in the least at afflictions, if I'm in any way uncharitable, if I revenge my own case, if I do anything purely to please myself or admit anything because it is a great denial to me, if I trust to myself, if I take any praise for any good which Christ does by me or in me or through me, or if I am in any way proud, I shall act as my own and not God's. I purposely... I purpose in my life to be absolutely his. Now, this is his prayer. How different does that sound than Samson? Because Jonathan Edwards understood that it's one thing. We're all called to be consecrated to the Lord, my friends. All of us are. But how many of us purposely do it? How many of us set out each morning and say, Lord, every part of me is consecrated unto you? My thoughts, my heart, my speeching, my actions, even my body is consecrated unto you. Do with it as you will for your honor and glory. May I not do anything today that diminishes you or your gospel or the furtherance of your kingdom. How many of us start our day like that? Beloved, have you ever consecrated yourself and your body to the Lord like that? Are you wholly devoted to him? Or just on Sundays? Just on times when we gather? I pray that this prayer of Jonathan Edwards would be the desire and prayer for all of us here tonight and all who will be listening to the podcast later. May we seek to be consecrated mind, body, and soul for the glory of the Lord, for his glory and his glory alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you again for the challenge from your word, Lord. It's one thing to have the trappings of holiness, to carry the label of being consecrated. It's another, Lord, to be to desire to be consecrated unto you, to make that our focus each day. Father, we need your help with that, of course, through the leading and prompting of your spirit. But when that occurs, Lord, may we not be like Samson and push that aside for our own selfish desires. Instead, Lord, may we submit to that and make it our purpose in life to glorify you, to consecrate every part of our body, our mind, our heart, our soul, even our bodies. May we not do anything that diminishes you in any way. May you be glorified by all we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.